All right. Uh, hello, everyone. I guess uh, we could call this another one of uh, my podcast episodes. Uh, but uh, this time it's, I guess we could call this one of the special edition episodes because I, I am, and uh, I'm currently pretty disoriented still because I just literally just woken up. But uh, <laughs> I think it's worth it because today I'm joined by Nate Corey. Uh, hello, Nate. Thank you very much for joining me today. And uh, my pleasure. Uh, to those who may have this, this is uh, going up on YouTube and uh, all the podcast networks, and uh, it's going to feature your name fairly prominently there. And if some of the some of the listeners who came here uh, uh, purely because of uh, Nate are wondering who the hell am I? <laughs> what? Well, who, who is this guy with the goofy accent? Uh, I am Iggy of uh, the Fight Site. And uh, if you're wondering what the Fight Site is, and if you've never heard of us, we're, we are primarily a combat sports analysis website. We provide combat sports analysis and we talk about uh, all the technical, all the nitty gritty technical stuff that uh, happens in fighting and we break down fights. And, but... Nevertheless, we are very outspoken about our position, which is, uh, I would, I should say, I think my editor would, would not disagree with me when I say that we have uh, fairly staunchly pro-fighter, pro-consumer, pro-union well, pro stance. And uh, we can, all of us pretty much think that uh, Dana White, uh, he's a bit of a bastard, you know, <laughs> so... <laughs> and. So it's appropriate that I think um, I think it's appropriate that I've decided to invite Nick Quarry for this discussion. Uh, and uh, this topic discussion is, uh, well, the MMA community overall. And uh, it's the current climate within the MMA community and uh, the problems with it and uh, what uh, needs to be done to improve. And uh, because, I mean, as much as... Uh, uh, as much I think some fighters would uh, would like to be less dependent on the MMA community and their perception within the MMA community, still it's uh, it's kind of a fact that uh, fight fans make the, the whole world sort of spin, the combat sports world, and uh, uh, the UFC kind of tries its best to spin narratives and uh, push narratives that would uh, kind of make a fighter's life not that uh, they make a, a fighter's life pretty difficult on average. I think, I think it, we, we can both agree on that, with, especially with their marketing campaigns and promotion campaigns and the way that Dana White in particular seems to like uh, to constantly imply that uh, fighter A doesn't want to fight fighter B because he's a pussy or whatever. And that's why uh, he said like, the most recent example, the interim heavyweight championship fights, Cyril Gunn versus Derek Lewis, basically set up in order to put pressure on Francis Ngannou and uh, to and this whole almost a smear campaign on Francis Ngannou and the character assassination that they were trying to do with Francis Ngannou, the professional fighter, the heavyweight champion of the UFC, who is supposed who supposedly ran to Africa, to his home, to avoid fighting the new heavyweight contender that they have, the hot new prospect or whatever. So uh, to uh, 
enough. I guess that's enough of me prattling on. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not very experienced in doing interviews and uh, uh, just uh, I mostly only record podcasts solo or with colleagues. So it's uh, kind of like it's it's a I tend to be pretty rambly. That's basically it. So, Nate. All right. <laughs> Take a deep breath. We'll, we'll just consider it a conversation between two people talking about a sport that we both enjoy. So, yeah. Lead us off. Do you have something you want to ask me about everything you talk about? Yeah. Essentially, just, uh, I just, uh, after I've, I already gave a brief outline of uh, pretty much the, the, theme of this discussion and so uh you're since you're pretty experienced with uh well in the, in both uh both in the cage and outside of the cage with the, when it comes to interacting with the mma community what sort of climate the mma community tends to have in general and like what are your like just preliminary thoughts overall on the situation within the mma community what how would you uh, I guess describe the situation within the MMA community and how it uh, relates to fighters specifically. Well, it's it's really like any community, any fan based group of people, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, whatever it may be. The MMA community is the exact same. You have the fan base. You have some that are more casual fans, and you have some that are hardcore fans that live and breathe it it's their entire life i can honestly say no one has ever been rude or unkind to me in person and mm -hmm. that's generally the way most fans are across the board uh where you have the rude disrespectful fans is always online and it's it's such a sad state of affairs not just not really for the fighters because I don't care if you want to be rude to me. If you want to mock me for getting knocked out in a UFC title shot, why would you really think that I care what you think? It's just not important to me at all. Uh, fans that want to come up to me and tell me they appreciate what I've done. Uh, they're a fan of my work, my way of being my life. Awesome. I can appreciate that. And if somebody had, a lot of experience in something that I was doing. So there, there's been fans throughout the years. And just, I think with every fighter, especially fighters from my generation and before, we just wanted to fight. So we fought in warehouses. We didn't know who we were going to fight. We would show up. I'd show up to watch a fight and end up fighting. And then getting on the ultimate fighter, making it into the UFC, all of a sudden now you're famous in this small pond at least and all sorts of things are being required from you fan interaction things that were never the case before and 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 all types of fans and it was a learning process for me and how to interact with fans and the way that I address things and uh, there's been a few times over the years when fans have contacted me after something that I said and they would tell me look man uh, what you said was somewhat offensive to me or it, it just it kind of hurt my feelings type of thing the way you said it and an example that i'm thinking of i would talk about leaving my my dead end blue collar job and and make it into fighting 
And somebody contacted me and he said, hey, man, for a lot of us, our blue collar job is our dream job. And we love what we do. And I thought about that and I went, wow, man, that's I really appreciate you saying that because I didn't realize the way that I was framing it made it sound like I was putting down blue collar work in general. Uh, I've been a blue collar worker my whole life. I still do construction to this day. I manage rentals. And what did I just rebuilt a deck a few weeks ago, rebuilt a bathroom a while back. My father was an incredible carpenter. My, my grandfather was a carpenter. Well, my point being that there are fans out there that, that have great opinions and they're going to share information that we all can learn from and adjust our way of thinking. And that's kind of my mindset. If somebody has, has more experience in something or a different viewpoint, as long as they're respectful and they can deliver that, I love to hear it. And even on my, my Twitter exchanges, I'm very opinionated on Twitter. I, I talk a lot about politics. So for everybody that follows me, expecting me to be watching the latest UFC and talking about it, I'm much more interested in politics these days because it's such a fascinating thing to me. And I'll interact with people on politics. And sometimes they're just rude idiots that yeah. don't, don't have any facts to back up their opinion at all. I can see that it's completely fear mongering and, and rage bait is where they're coming from. And those people, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. And then somebody will come in and say, hey, I appreciate your opinion. Have you thought about things from this perspective? And I can say, oh, I haven't, but thank you for sharing that. And what I'm getting at is for us fighters, a lot of it is just kind of learning as we go along how these things go. And then seeing that as many, that there's so many more great fans who are respectful, who appreciate what we do and have done. And then there's always going to be a few of those outliers that are, for lack of a better word, just assholes. And <clears throat> my response to them is always the same because we'll be talking about increasing pay, taking care of the fighters. And this always kind of amazes me. And this, this just happened today, in fact, or over the past week. Uh, Scarlett Johansson is battling with Disney over the Black Widow movie. Oh, yeah. And Disney put Black Widow directly onto Disney. And her contract was she gets a, a percentage of the movie theater ticket purchases. So because Disney went behind her back and did that, uh, she's filing lawsuit to get the compensation she's owed. So Disney then comes out and says, oh my God, Scarlett Johansson's trying to take advantage of poor Mickey Mouse in the time of COVID. It's such a tragedy. People do like people. People do like to defend Disney a lot and multi-million, and, and multi-billion so dollar corporations. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. And Scarlett Johansson, she is a lot more alike to you and I as working class people because she shows up, she does her job, she gets a paycheck. She gets paid for the work that she does. She's not this part of this generationally wealthy. She's not a part of this big Disney corporation. But the way Disney spun it was that she's trying to take care of just this small mom and pop corporation that Walt Disney started with Mickey Mouse. How could she be so greedy? And you'll have people saying, oh, my God, she's so greedy. Look at how much money she made. I do it for much less. Well, of course you would because you can't act and you don't have a fan base. And it was it was quite a while ago that the Screen Actors Guild was set up. And it used to be that the movie studios owned an actor. They could not work for anyone else. They had these very restrictive contracts. 
And then they unionized, they created the Screen Actors Guild and everything got better for all of the actors, for everybody in the movies, they get residuals, blah, blah, blah. And they do that to protect the actors from themselves. Because if Martin Scorsese came out and said, hey, I'm gonna do this indie pick really on the cheap. I just can't afford to pay anybody anything. Do I have any volunteers to be in my movie? You'd have everybody showing up. Oh, I'm going to work for Martin Scorsese. I'm going to become uh, so well-known, then I'll become rich and famous. And the reality, what they're doing is they're saying, I will work for nothing. That's what the minimum wage should be. So Screen Actors Guild protects the workers from themselves. And that's where we fighters have to be as well, because right now we have what's called a reverse auction. And we saw this with Dustin Poirier a while back. The UFC wanted him to fight somebody on, I think it was a moment's notice. And he just said, yeah, I'm not going to jump right in and risk my career, risk my health for the same pay that I would get for a fight four months down the line. And then you had Michael Chandler, I think is who it was, jump right in and say, oh, I'll do it right now. I'll, I'll, I'll do it for a sandwich. It's like, dude, you do not understand that you're actually hurting yourself and every MMA fighter out there by doing these things. And then you have the fans that come in and say, oh my God, you guys are so greedy. You made $30,000 in one night. That takes me an entire year. No, that 30 grand actually took me 20 years to make. And it took me training twice a day, six days a week, for that 20 years. In other professions, they call that a doctorate, a PhD. So if you're in the top 10, even the top 100 of your job worldwide, and it took 10, 15, 20 years for you to become the best or in the top 10, the best of your world, are you going to do it for free? Especially when you see that your boss is making billions of dollars and knowing that when your job, your you have maybe five, maybe 10 years to work out that 20 years of dedication to then hopefully set up your family for the rest of their life. Are you just going to take whatever's offered you? Of course not. And the fans that say again, well, I would do that for free. Well, you'd have to, you suck. Nobody would pay to watch you fight. What are we going to do? Watch you throw haymakers for 10 seconds before you're bent over and gasping. Are you kidding me? Go ahead and train twice a day, six days a week for five years, 10 years, 15 years, start fighting in the small amateur shows, win a dozen fights, move into the beginning pro shows, the king of the cage, the gladiator challenge, fight there 10 or 15 times. Then maybe get your shot in the UFC, fight there for three or four or five years, headline some pay-per-views, take some fights last minute, get your title shot, win that belt, strap it around you and tell Dana, I don't need to be paid. I'm just doing this for the love of the sport. Is, is that what you're going to do? Probably not because you're going to realize that this is a job. It just so happens that it's really cool and we love what we do. But if you don't treat this like a business, you're going to be left broken, broken at the end of the day because every promoter out there treats it like a business. And there's never been a promoter in the history of the sport that will tell you he's ever made a dime. Oh my God, we're just barely scraping by. We didn't make anything on that last show. I, I, I just can't afford to give you an extra plane ticket for your, your second corner man to come to the fights. And then they get on their private jet and they fly off to their private island. Are you kidding me? 
it's the fighters are the working class. And I'm sorry that you're underpaid at your job and you hate your job and you're looking back at all the opportunities that you missed instead of going to school and getting that education, getting that better job. Instead of stepping up and getting that, that advancement in your career, that promotion, now you're 30, 40, 50, and you're looking back at a career of, of wasted life, a legacy that means nothing. And now you're looking at these fighters living your dream that you never had the balls to step up and, and take to fight for. Don't blame us. Don't take that out on us. That's all on you, man. And I'm sorry that your life has turned out that way. Maybe it's not too late to change it. Yeah, that's really kind of like the root cause of all comments of that nature. The idea that fighters who do not do it, uh, who aren't jumping at every chance to fight, basically anybody uh, somehow being greedy or being like uh, being yellow bellied or whatever. Like, well, and let me this... let me ask you this. So, so let's say you're a painting contractor and you paint houses. Mm -hmm. And you've got a, a, a three-bedroom, single-story house, 1,800 square feet. And the guy says, hey, can you get this painted in two days? If so, I'll pay you five grand. And you're going to say, yeah, yeah, I think I can do that. Well, somebody else shows up and says, hey, I've got this mansion that's 8,000 square feet. It's, it's three levels high. Uh, I need it painted in two days as well, and I'm going to pay you five grand. And if you don't get it painted in two days, I'm only going to pay you $2,500 and you're not going to get any more business moving forward. Which one are you going to do? Are you going to take the harder work that you're most likely not going to finish for at least as much money, maybe even less? Of course not. But in the UFC, that's what they expect you to do. They'll, they'll come to you and say, hey, you know, we had somebody fall out. Will you take this fight on last minute? I know you're not ready. Uh, we're going to pay you what we've always paid you, but don't worry. If this works out, we'll take care of you. And then you take the fight. You lose because you're not prepared. You lose your sponsors. You get half of your pay. And no, the UFC does not take care of you because you have a loss on your record now. You get moved to the back of the line. And people can dog on John Jones as much as they want. When one of his opponents fell out and they wanted him to fight Chael Sonnen on, on last minute, he just said no. And everybody called him a bitch and a crybaby. You should be able to fight anybody, anytime. And he just went, no, man, this is a business for me. This is how I'm building my future. I'm building my family. I'll fight Chael after I get a good camp. And so he did. And he wrecked Chael. It's a business. But the UFC, the fight fans, they, they mix in all of this emotion along with it, which makes it exciting in the first place. But you have to treat it like a business because everyone else around you is from your coaches to the promoters to the vendors. It's all about money for them. You want to fight because you love fighting. And if it happens to work out and you make a lot of money, that's awesome. But just be aware that no one else is doing this purely for the love of it. A promoter who doesn't make money goes out of business. They make as much money as they possibly can. Yeah. And uh, there's really kind of speaks of a certain lack of, I guess, class solidarity and class consciousness uh, among fight fans. And I mean, among like people in general, like the sheer uh, disconnect between what people think fighters are doing, uh, doing in their day to day lives, what they live for and uh, what they think they should be living for and uh, 
doing all these uh, all this incredibly hard work for like uh, somehow somehow craftsmen uh, whether it be whether they whether they're actors or fighters or artists or uh, painters everyone seems to think that uh, first of all like if you uh, look at artists online most artists have moved online these days because uh, because most art is digital these days it's basically just simply it's more expedient to become a digital artist than buy all these all the canvases and uh, the, the uh, all the paint and all that stuff and first of all certain people seem to th- uh, start thinking that oh artists are just getting lazy and digital art is just incredibly easy. It's simple, and uh, it's not something that takes like five hours, six hours to complete, or two days to complete. And then uh, they contact these artists and say, "Hey, uh, how about um, you work for my like uh, like small like online businesses? Reach out to artists and uh, uh, hey, I'm, we're working on a pro- such and such project. How about you do this piece for us?" and uh, the small the small time online artist says okay i'll do it for such a, for for a set sum of money and they respond by saying oh we thought you're a small time artist how about you work for exposure we're a big company and your art is going to be featured on our project uh, and they are bewildered that the artist refuses to do it for free essentially just because uh, just because people are going to look at your art it doesn't mean you're just going to automatically get money. You have to actively fight for it. And it's the same in any industry. And fighting is no different. But uh, since... Uh, and also, there's just a lack of understanding of uh, how much money actually goes into preparing for a fight and how much money goes into, well, repairing yourself after a fight. Because uh, a lot of the, the money that uh, fighters receive just basically goes into covering the the medical bills and uh, the uh, they have to pay their coaches and in the end a lot of fighters who fight in on say the UFC undercards uh, week after week after week they a lot of it, of that money uh, goes into I don't think they make a profit really uh, like any kind of sizable profit for that matter at least no, the the only way I was able to make it to get where I am today is through sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, fighting in the UFC, my first first fight, I got paid five thousand to show, five thousand to win. Second fight, five and five. Third fight, five and five. My fourth fight, this was all in seven and a half months from first fight to fourth. My fourth fight was a title shot, and I got paid ten thousand dollars for that. So I made four forty thousand dollars. For four fights in the UFC, there were all televised, one of those being uh, a title fight with being main event at the MGM Grand headlining a pay-per-view. And I used to know the numbers. It was something like the gate alone, the tickets were one and a half or two million dollars. And then the pay-per-view and all the sponsors and everything. I had my back surgery. When I came back, they so graciously offered me 10 and 10 for my first fight back and my second fight back. And I had to call them and say, look, man, I'm losing money to fight for you on your pay-per-view cards. If you're not going to give me a raise, I'm going to have to retire. Like, this isn't a threat. I've got a little girl. I've got a mortgage. I'm in my mid-30s. 
I can't be making $40,000 a year while I'm fighting for the largest MMA promotion on the planet. And so they jumped me up to, I think, 30,000 to show and 30,000 if I won, which was nice. But at the same time, you're looking at 10 years and maybe with some of those fights, you only get the fight once a year and, and then you have a loss. Like my last fight against Jorge Rivera, uh, if I hadn't retired, if I wanted to continue, it would have been probably nine months before I could fight again. And that would be a rush because the whole left side of my face was shattered. So I had a massive reconstructive surgery there, 13 screws and titanium mesh. Well, that takes six months to heal. Then you have to get back into shape and then you have to get it. So that would have been a probably one fight for the year, 30, $36,000, I think at that time, that's what I was making to once again, be live on TV for the UFC and, and putting it all on the line. And it's not like the UFC is struggling, but you know, this is, here's what it comes down to. I can sit around and bitch and complain about how low the pay is forever. Nothing is going to change it unless we fighters actually step up and make the change. And so I'm not one that, that likes to sit around and complain. I, I've seen that enough through my life. And I see that all the time. People that are upset about something, but they continue drudgingly going mm -hmm. into work or a part of a relationship they hate. I'm very much either fight to change it or shut up. And so I joined the UFC class action lawsuit, which what we're saying is that the UFC has monopolized, monopsized the sport. They've artificially withheld our wages. They, they've done all sorts of illegal things. And our financial expert has said that the UFC underpaid us by around $800 million in our time period. Now, if, we, if the case goes the full distance, then those damages are tripled. $2.4 billion is what the UFC would owe us. And that's over a period of, I think, seven years of, of our lawsuit. And we're, we just know if you're winning the game, you're not going to willingly change the rules. Employers pay as little as they possibly can. And we're seeing that finally as the workers are going, you know, $7.25 as a minimum wage here in America is not enough. You cannot exist on under $15,000 a year. When minimum wage was set up in this country, it said, the law said, you should be able to support your family on this minimum wage. But people quit fighting for anything, for any raises towards that whatsoever. And now after the pandemic, everybody said, you know, that's not enough money. So now those businesses are being forced to pay 12, 13, 14, even $15 an hour to these unskilled workers. Let's be clear. There's no work that's really unskilled. It's no. just how brutal, how difficult it is and how much you look down on it. I've, I came up picking berries in the fields. I've done fast food. I did janitorial for two years. I framed houses. I worked for a painting contractor. I worked for a sign shop. I've done all of those things. And then I've also worked in the white collar world as a, as a spokesman for a company. I've done a lot of talks everywhere. Uh, it wasn't more difficult than doing underfloor insulating in the middle of the summer. It wasn't more difficult than framing a house in the middle of the winter. It's just that we've chosen, oh, these jobs are worth less and people are willing to accept it. So finally, as the workers have said, we're not going to put up with that shit anymore. Now the wages are going up. And with the fighters, unfortunately, you still have so many fighters that are thanking UFC for underpaying them or begging for a bonus. Instead, what the fighters need to be doing is standing in solidarity and saying, you're paying too little, we deserve more.
but it's such a difficult thing to do. And every sport has gone through this. The NFL, it, it, the message is always the same from the owner, from the promoter, from the team owner. It's always, God, you guys are so greedy. For three months out of the year, you get to play a game, whether it's basketball or football or baseball. How lucky are you? And then you get to go home and work in the factory and take care of your family for the other nine months. I mean, and the players in the NFL said, wait a minute. So you guys are worth billions and we're getting paid twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year to play this game that's literally destroying our bodies. And you want us to say thank you? No. So they formed the NFL Players Association. And now they get roughly 50% of the money that they generate. Baseball, same thing. Basketball, same thing. And baseball was Kurt Flood that stood up. And everybody was quiet and scared. And, oh, what if, the, what if baseball comes after him? Well, of course they did. But he also changed the sport and became a legend. So in MMA, it's just our time for us to stand up and say, no, we've made you enough money. It's time for us to make enough money for our family. Because Dana White has now hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars. His family's set. Francis Ngannou can't bequeath the heavyweight title to his son. It doesn't work that way. His son has to fight and struggle and make it through there. There is no, no giving of anything in the world that we come from. So we're fighting in the court with our class action lawsuit. And then we're fighting back in Washington, D.C. to change the law with the Ali Expansion Act, which is what protects boxers from shady promoters, promoters who control the title, promoters who control the ranking, promoters who manage fighters that fight for their promotion. All of these things are blatantly immoral. But of course, they're not going to do the right thing just because it's right. They need a law to tell them. Conor McGregor should not be able to jump over Frankie Edgar to get a title shot. In my opinion, Frankie Edgar would have been a very bad fight for Conor McGregor. But somehow he magically jumped from fighting a number 11 guy in Dennis Seaver to all the way up to a title shot, jumping every, over everybody that would have been a tough matchup for him. And why is that? Because he was the, pro, he was the champ that the UFC wanted. He came yeah. from a new country they wanted to break into. He had a good fight style. He had a good attitude. He was easy to market. So he gets to jump over all those guys. And, I, man, I'm sorry if you don't like the way John Fitch fights, if you think he's boring. That's sports. If he's not that good, then he should be beaten. But you don't just get to take him out. Can you imagine any other sport saying that? Uh, hey, <clears throat> we realize that the Cleveland Browns are going to compete in the Super Bowl, but you know you're just not that popular. So we're going to kick you out. We're going to put in some other team from New York or LA because that'll make a lot more money for us. You understand this is what's best for the sport. No, that's not the way sports works. Yeah, and that brings us like to the two primary points I wanted to hit. Uh, is <laughs> excuse me. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Conor McGregor, everyone talks about how Conor McGregor brought tons of eyes on the sport. He, he grew the sport and that's why everyone should be grateful to him, especially other fighters, because now they're making more or something. And like, first of all, they're not making more just because Conor McGregor is making a lot of money. And second of all, all those eyes are mostly focused on Conor. They're not focused on the sport, really. And uh, like looking at the attitude of many of those people because as you said in the beginning there are casual fans and there are hardcores and like the hardcores generally understand what sort of um, issues are going around behind the scenes and how everything works and so they 
tend to keep the comments to themselves and as opposed to casual fans who could just can uh, hop in, hop in online fire off a bunch of abusive uh personal messages to like help in uh, someone's dms and help off a uh, fire off a bunch of abusive messages and, and then basically just uh, go away and move on with their day and uh, but yeah like uh where was i going with this <laughs> god damn it uh so yeah uh, there's the UFC seems to I mean they're not stupid they they are owned uh, owned by a very large media conglomerate WMIMG and uh, by extension Disney funnily enough and uh, they've got some pretty pretty brainy people working for them and uh, I'm not saying that those people are evil for any reason because they're just you know they're doing what they're told to earn money and uh, what doing by that I mean they have to come up with certain narratives to feed to the fans with regards how the sport seems to work and how the UFC works and what is happening and why such and such and such fight is happening and uh, they usually are pretty they're pretty good at justifying decisions like that like uh, justifying why Conor McGregor is able to hold up two divisions and uh, hope over quality competition to earn a title shot. And uh, many casual f- fans seem to... Uh, I mean, it's hard to quantify because, I mean, no one is running any statistics on this. But it seems to me that fans are kind of, you know, they're pretty willing to eat it all up. And uh, hence why I think this idea of a union is facing such a pushback both amongst the fighters uh, and uh, amongst the, f- uh, the the fan base, especially the UFC fan base, because uh, the UFC is, uh, seems to have uh, all their union-busting tactics uh, so pretty, let, let pretty well ad- rehashed. Let me address the, the union thing, because this was... I, I've never been a part of a union. I really didn't know anything about it, so it took me being educated so I could really understand it. The number one thing for a union to come into existence is the workers have to be employees. Mm-hmm. Every, None of the fighters all of that. the fighters are independent contractors. Mm-hmm. So right there, that should cause you to pause and say, wait a minute, is it really that we're looking for a union? So let's let's just assume we'll, may, we'll wave a magic wand and now every single fighter is an employee of the UFC and they can unionize. What has that done? Is it a free market? Can the heavyweight champion of the UFC look to unify his belt with Bellator? No, because they're two completely separate organizations. One's an employee for UFC and one's an independent contractor for Bellator. Can the UFC heavyweight champion play uh, off of Bellator and try to get a raise? Nope, because he's a UFC employee and Bellator has their own set of standards. So unionizing under the UFC All it will do is cement the UFC as the greatest fighting organization that the world will ever see. And they will continue to own 90, 95% of every dollar that's spent worldwide and 90, 95% of all the best fighters worldwide. So there's a slight distinction to make there from a union to an association. Mm -hmm. Independent contractors can form an association. 
And an association will go broadly across the UFC and across Bellator and its strength. And, and of course, across every other organization with professional fighters. And from that point, then there's negotiation that backed by the teeth of the Ali Expansion Act and with our lawsuit. Now with the Ali Expansion Act, one of the big things that it does, it says a promotion cannot own their own title. They cannot do their own rankings that apply worldwide. And if somebody fights and earns the number one contender spot, they get that title shot. So now you have a Francis Ngannou, who's the number one fighter in the world and heavyweight, and then you have the Bellator heavyweight fighter. Maybe he's the, the number one ranked contender. Those two guys have to fight because we need to find out who is the best, who is the undisputed, because right now we don't know. Everybody can make conjecture over who's the best fighter in each weight class, but we'll never know because they'll never fight. But with an association, then it goes open to bidding and the UFC can say, okay, I'm going to spend $5 million on each fighter to get them to fight. And we want to carry it under the UFC banner. And Bellator says, oh, no, no, no. We'll pay $6 million to each fighter to get them fight. We want it to be under Bellator. Or the UFC and Bellator can come together and say, well, why don't we cross promote and we'll each, we'll, we'll each pony in $4 million each. So now the fighters are getting $8 million each. And so the UFC, who right now makes out of the, the hundred, out of the, basically out of every dollar that they generate, they keep 85 cents, roughly. So the fighters get about 15% of the money that comes in. And what was football we talked about? Anywhere between 52 and 48%, depending on what's been negotiated for that year. So now you have the UFC and Bellator in this bidding war over who's going to hold this fight. Now Mark Cuban comes in. And he says, screw you guys, I'll pay them both $10 million because I know that this fight's going to make $60 million and I'll spend 20 to make 40 any day. And now the UFC is going, geez, we're used to making 60 million and paying the guys 5 million. Now I guess we have to step up. So the free market really comes in. And then the fighters can also negotiate about things like, what are the sponsors that I want to have? Because they really hit the free market. In the UFC right now, you can technically fight out of your contract. So if you're, if you're on a four-fight contract, what the UFC would always try to do on your third fight, they would say, hey, we need you to sign up for another four- or five-fight contract. And if you'd say, no, I'm going to wait and finish out my contract, then the last fight in your contract would be a horrible matchup for you. They would give you no promotion, no exposure, put it on an undercard on ESPN Plus or something where nobody is going to see it, hoping that you get a loss. So when you hit the free market, your value is, is very diminished. The best case scenario there is that you win your fight and then you have, I think it's a six-month uh, period where you can only negotiate with the UFC and then I think six months after that, where it's a, they can match any offer that you take. So after you fought out your contract, you're sitting there for an entire year, unless you play ball with UFC. And if you're so upset at the UFC, you'll never fight for them again. Then you just watch your career die, as is the case with Kung Lee. Because mm -hmm. the UFC did Kung Lee so badly that he said, I'll never fight for you guys again. You accused me of drug use that I wasn't doing. You sullied my name. You killed all my business opportunities I was working on. My kids got death threats because of this. 
And now you won't even come out and say you were wrong when we proved that you were wrong. Are you kidding me? I'm never fighting for you again. So what's his option? Let his contract expire? No, it doesn't work that way because the UFC says, well, we offered you a fight and you didn't take it. So now your contract is never ending. You'll never fight again. But let's say you're the champion and you're just crushing everybody. And they made you sign that four fight contract to get your championship shot and you got your shot and you won your fight and you fought your four fights and now you're standing there as the heavyweight champion of the world and you say, I'm a free agent. I will fight for whoever will pay me the most. And the UFC points at your contract and goes, oh, I guess you missed this little clause right here. The champion's clause that says with every fight that you take as a champion, one more is added to your contract. So you're never able to fight out your contract and hold a belt. These are the things that need to be changed. And it's so hilarious when I hear people talking about, oh, the, uh, it'll be just a mess, just like boxing, where the best won't fight the best. Really? So, so, we're, so you think that the best is fighting the best right now in MMA? Well, how did that Couture-Fedor fight go? I forget. Oh, wait, they never fought because one was for the UFC and one refused to sign with the UFC. Who's the best between Bellator and UFC at 145? Who knows? So yeah, boxing has some mistakes, has some problems in it. Problems that it, all of those organizations were there before the Ali Act. The problems are a lot better now and the boxers are making a whole lot more money and taking care of themselves. And it's not just the promoter who's bragging about how much money they're making, which Dana White and all of them do on a regular basis. Finally, you will get the fighters have an opportunity to find out what their true worth is. And if you're actually a capitalist and you love America like you claim to, that's what you want is for the worker to be able to test the free market capitalism and see their true value. Yeah, and uh, that's where the political bent comes into play, really, doesn't it? In that the UFC does seem to cater to specifically to that particular subset of fan who is... Uh, well, so let's, uh, let's address that really quickly. Yeah. So five years ago, we were in Washington, D.C. with the Ali Expansion Act, H.R. 44. Uh, we had 58 signers on the bill, bipartisan, more Republican than more Democrats. The original Ali Act had 16 signers on the bill, more Democrats than Republicans. Passed with no problem whatsoever. And all we did with the Ali Expansion Act was we changed the verbiage of this protects every boxer to this protects every fighter. So we weren't passing new legislation. We were just expanding the role of existing legislation to cover more people in arguably the exact same situation. 58 signers on our bill. We were told it was going to be going to the House floor, getting voted on within a couple weeks. Then mysteriously, our bill disappeared. It's what they call dead in committee. Well, what was the big change that happened five years ago, four and a half, five years ago? Oh, Donald Trump took office. Donald <laughs> Trump is champion of the workers. Who, who was, I, I, yeah, I, I, my head will explode if I go into his legacy. Let's just say he's best friends with Dana White. Mm -hmm. And so Dana White makes a few visits to the White House. Donald Trump makes a visit or two to actual UFC cards as well. And shockingly enough, Bill H.R. 44, the Ali Expansion Act, dies in committee. Just killed it. 
So every time I see these UFC fighters standing arm in arm with Dana or with Donald Trump, I just want to shake my head and go, do you have any idea what you're doing? Yeah, you think you're making a lot of money because you just made 40 grand on that last fight and you come from poor working class. And for you, that's a lot. If you give a starving man a crust of bread, he will thank you for it, even if you're the one starving him. You want to talk about Conor McGregor as being the, the highest paid fighter in UFC history. What did he make around $10 million for one of his big fights? And I won't disagree. That, that is a lot of money. I wish I would have made that much money in my career. It is what it is. It is a lot of money. But is that what the free market dictated his value to be? Well, what did he make as an O&O boxer against Floyd Mayweather Jr.? 10 times that? $100 million? So he's getting 10% at the UFC what he got in boxing. So when I see these guys standing with Donald Trump and Dana White and talking about how they're these great captains of industry and thanking them for all their hard work and the big checks they cut them, I just laugh and I go, my God, you guys are so ignorant. You're thanking the guy starving you for kicking you a crumb or two when he is the one that made sure you are not going to find your true market value because he stopped the bill, the Ali Expansion Act from passing. And we'll be heading back this year, now that we have a new change of administration and working to get that bill passed again so the fighters can find their true value. And anytime, you, you really have to look and see who's opposed to something to see if you're going to be for it or against it. Who's against fighters getting more protection? Promoters. Who are the sleaziest people in the game? Promoters. Promoters. Who takes <laughs> most of the money? Promoters. And what's necessary for a fight? You need a couple fighters. You need some fans. So fighters can fight anywhere. Fans, if it's a good enough fight, they'll show up. They'll pay $70 to sit at home and watch this fight. But then somebody comes in, this promoter, and says, hey, let me rent the venue and I'll set up the pay-per-view. And for that, I'll just take 85% of the money. It's cool. And because it's been done that way in MMA for the past 20 years, people think that's just the way it is. And it's... It's just, it's time for a change and we're the ones that have to force it to change. And we will. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, how do you add, uh, how do you really add anything to that statement? But I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess like there is a certain like, uh, like crab mentality. In the MMA community overall, like uh, people seem to hate seeing uh, fighters really succeed as a group, as opposed to seeing, uh, well, individuals that are popular succeed because the UFC are the ones pushing those individuals. And one thing that has always struck out to me as odd is the, like the sheer fact that Conor McGregor actively pushed for a contract where there was a clause that said he wouldn't fight on any events where other fighters fighters other than him outside of his opponent are getting pay-per-view points and like and fans are still like flocking online and saying that oh like legend done so much for the sports everyone is benefiting from uh, him being so popular and uh, bringing so many f new fans to the sport and pay has gone down for fighters yeah Maybe not directly because the UFC will say, hey, we used to pay $5,000 for the first fight. Now we pay 10 or whatever the case may be. 
my last fight was 11 years ago and I had my pay, uh, I think 30, 36,000, as I mentioned earlier, I made more in sponsors than I did from the pay of the UFC. I made roughly 44, $45,000 in sponsors. And I was on the undercard, I believe it was a spike TV fight. Shortly after I retired, the UFC quit letting fighters use sponsors. You could only use Reebok and they set out the tiers for the payment. That was my 10th fight in UFC making $45,000. The Reebok pay structure was I would have been paid $5,000 for that exact same fight, a 90% pay cut. And Dana White's standing there saying, this is what's best for the sport. Having all those sponsors just cheapens the fighters. We want to make it, make it clean and look professional while he sells every square inch of the mat. And now every square inch is now covered by Reebok or Venom or some other sponsor that they're going to take the majority of the money from. What it really comes down to, and Dana White has said this in the interviews, his goal is to keep the fighters starving. So they don't think about the future. They don't think about their career. They're so hungry. They will fight anyone, anywhere, at any time, no matter how bad it is for their career. And that may sound awesome to the the average fan out there that, man, these fighters are going to do terrible for themselves. And they're not going to pick the, the fight that's going to win. The, the fighters are going to end up fighting the best, but it will be on their terms. And you'll see the best version of them. And you'll have fighters who are now getting paid enough that they can have camps where they're getting the, the best care. I think about when Connor, I hate to use air quotes, but won the title mm-hmm. against Chad Mendez. Are you kidding me? Chad Mendez took the fight on two weeks' notice. He flew there on Southwest. Connor flew there on a private jet. How much was Connor paid beforehand? Those fights, do you think that contributed to putting together his camps compared to how much Chad Mendes put together? And then Chad wrecked him for nine minutes and 50 seconds, gassed, was turtled, took a few shots to the arms, and the referee stopped the fight. Where was Chad Mendez's rematch? That was a pretty competitive fight on two weeks' notice. I guess they didn't want Connor to be fighting another wrestler that manhandled them so much. So they had to protect the guy that's selling the most pay-per-views for them. And yeah, you can say this is just business. Sure. But it's not sports because that's what sports is all about. I'm sorry if the most popular team didn't make it to the NFL. I'm sorry if the most charismatic fighter didn't win the championship. If that's how you want it to be, go watch pro wrestling. They have it all scripted out. They know who's going to win the most popular person. They have their speeches already. In sports, sometimes the guy that can't string two words together and has no personality holds the belt because he's the best. And then it's someone else's job to come up and take him out. In sports, it's where the best is really supposed to shine. And we don't get these games anymore of, of manipulating the rankings and the pay structure and protecting one fighter so they get their title shot and the promoter makes the most money. And it's always been really funny to me when that is so backfired with the UFC, when they'll choose somebody that has this great look and this great speaking ability, but they can't fight their way out of a paper bag. And they throw all sorts of money at them. They're getting paid five times what somebody else with the exact same record in the UFC is getting. And they just can't make it happen because that guy sucks. He's, he's not that good. 
let the fighters come up and you would be amazed at the stories that come with them and the fan base that comes as well. But for the UFC, and this has been the, the way it's been for a very long time, the UFC is the product. The fighters are just a, a necessary evil. And, and you'll see this over and over again. Somebody who thinks they're best friends with Dana White until they lose the championship, until they're on the downward slide, and then Dana no longer returns their texts or phone calls, messages. Hey, why am I fighting on the undercar? He never hears back. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, I was just another cog and I would have been doing better. Literally doing better serving him drinks in a bar than fighting for him. Because Dana White's been known to tip his server $10,000, $15,000, paying more than his fighters, the workers making him that money. So he can show the world how, how gracious how... he is. <laughs> exactly. And in reality, Look at that's me. sociopathic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like there's, there's such a cult of personality around Dana White, and he enjoys cultivating that cult of uh, personality. Pardon the pun. But uh, yeah, there's like, uh, so many misconceptions in, uh, in in the minds of both the fighters and the fans when with regards to how the sport works like and so many contradicting uh, ideas like the idea that uh, the UFC is a meritocracy somehow or when it engages in blatant protectionism with, with uh, certain fighters they would like to see succeed as opposed to fighters who let's say do not speak English all that well or maybe may have a bland personality as you've outlined, but, and uh, all that in mind with, uh, while like fans seem to think that the UFC is a meritocracy while certain fighters are given like basically handouts. And, uh, uh, and then like uh, a very interesting example recently, I think um, uh, I found it in, uh, how Justin Gaethje has been treated and how Justin Gaethje talked about how he's been treated. Like he would always uh, played uh, the role of a company man, essentially. He always agreed to fight. He always fought and uh, he always put on the showcase, like not showcase, always put on very entertaining Fine performances. Fights. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, after he lost to Khabib Nurmagomedov, uh, he's basically been put on a back burner basically like uh when when that that fight was almost a year ago now maybe even more i don't know i haven't counted but uh it, like he should like the man is basically must watch tv and yet he isn't given he the ufc is not doesn't seem to want to give him any more fights and like why and the reason for that i think is that Dana White and uh, Hunter Campbell and the UFC brothers seem to uh, treat fighters losing a competitive bout against the best of the best as a personal, some kind of personal affront, especially if they put, put on some kind of like marketing effort into promoting that fight and promoting that fighter specifically. And how is that fair? Like under any metric, when a promoter looks at a fighter losing a competitive bout, an actual fight where anything can, ha can happen, uh, you, you you may be the most skilled fighter in the world and still get like randomly sparked out, uh, just out of nowhere. And yeah, well, that, and that's the promoter's playbook where yeah. you'd be doing a whole lot better if you were just a better fighter. You know, mm -hmm. Your future is completely up to you. And he said that recently about a girl who 
was so happy she got a $50,000 bonus. She was like, I've been completely broke. This is the first time I've had a surplus of money in years. And Dana White came out and said, well, that's all on her. If she just won more, it wouldn't be a problem. In this sport, you eat what you kill. And it's like, you know how this sport actually works, right? Half the time you lose. 50% of the people on the card are going to lose. So you can't just say that's on you when the sport depends on half of you losing. And look at the NFL. Same thing. Half of the teams in there lose. And they continue losing and one continues winning until it makes it all the way to the Super Bowl. And the team that makes it to the Super Bowl, all those players get huge bonuses. You know what the worst player in the NFL makes that sits on the bench the entire season, never gets a minute of playing time? $660,000 to sit on the bench because their association has negotiated that. And the NFL makes billions and billions of dollars. And somehow with the worst player in the league making $660,000, the team owners are still worth billions of dollars. But now those players who spent 15 years going from peewee league to middle school to high school to college for free, where billions were made off of them there, finally have an opportunity in the average three and a half years of NFL professional playing time to make a little bit of money to make all that effort worthwhile. And they've made it to where they can. And they can build off that future. And now their career is over and they're 26. And they just made you know, $2 million. They can go back to school. They can invest in something. They can do something else. But in MMA and specifically the UFC, somebody's career can last for years. And they're just struggling by always with this promise that we can make it. And the belief that if I was only better, then I could be that champion. I, I could set up my family. And the reality is most of you can't. I remember Joe Silva, the matchmaker for the UFC, telling me he wished he could do a tournament at every fight because everyone believes they're going to win the tournament and only one person does. So you can pay everybody but the winner absolute shit. Mm -hmm. That was his perspective, not man, I want to reward these guys for putting on a great fight, for believing in themselves, for believing in the product, for coming out here. It was, no, I'm going to take advantage out of seven out of eight of you in this contest because I only have to pay one of them a decent amount of money and I don't have to pay the rest of you anything. For yeah, the same. And then you can market it as, oh, the winner, like the winner takes all. Like such well, a the, great the, story. The, the ultimate fighter contract was that the winners – uh, Forrest Griffin, and Diego Sanchez were getting this six-figure contract with UFC. It was $33,000 over three years. You're making next to nothing to be the best, <laughs> the very first ultimate fighter. And then for three years, you're stuck in these horrific contracts. It was just, just ridiculous, but that's the way they spin it. It's, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like ties back to the the very problem that uh, people tend to have is in that uh, most of most of the people like your average person doesn't really understand that we don't really live in a, like a zero sum world and the idea that the more well off people are like all across the world the better they themselves are going to live uh, the, the better their existence will become and uh, there seems to be this culture cultural problem where people assume that oh rich people are simply 
uh, are more successful and have more money simply because they deserve it. They worked for it, and like since they have more money, it somehow adds value to the to who they are. And like their net worth is their actual personal worth, and that's why we should listen to them and everything they say. And the UFC is no different, and the way the UFC brass tends to behave is no different from that. They always seem to think that taking away from people and making them work for something they don't have uh, is uh, it's kind of like a form of uh, incentive that makes the world spin when it really doesn't. Like if if you invest in your product and your product is fighters and if you treat them well and if you give them like com- the appropriate compensation, the value of your product will go up and your and your growth as a company is going to accelerate in the long run. But they're not interested in that. They don't understand that and they they do not know how to incentivize fighters in any other way rather than to just bully them into fighting and it's very evident in how Dana White treats his, uh, treats these promotional campaigns and whenever he goes out on press conferences and says that uh, once again fighter X is a pussy because he doesn't want to fight for uh, fighter Y for for such and such money uh, uh, one of the one of the best deals I was ever a part of as we were negotiating this the person that I was negotiating with looked at me and said, the only way that this deal is going to work out long-term is if we both feel like we've gotten a better end of the deal. Mm -hmm. If you feel lucky, like you took advantage of me. And if I feel lucky that I got a great bargain on you, then we're both going to feel like we're winning and we're both going to be happy. And that's exactly how it went down. I was very happy with what I was getting paid. That made me want to work harder, always be there and, and do the best of my ability. And it made him happy with the work that I was producing. And with the UFC, the funny thing is, is you can treat somebody like shit and pay him a lot of money and he'll be relatively happy. Or you can pay someone poorly and treat them like gold and tell them how great they are and how much you appreciate it. And they'll still be happy. But you, when you treat someone like shit and you pay them shit, it's not going to last a very long time. No. So taking care of these people. And that's what's hilarious. Like you said about Dana immediately goes back to the old playbook of, Oh, he's afraid to fight that person. Blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. Are you kidding me? No. And there was a, there was a negotiation I was a part of. I was working with Chris Lieben. He had just fought Aaron Simpson and he brought me into his camp to help him work on Aaron Simpson's game lined up well with mine and my coaching ability. So we worked a lot of getting up off the bottom and Lieben finished Aaron Simpson, knocked him out, I think in the first round. And it was a, that was a huge fight for him. Well, the weekend went by and Lieben got a phone call from Dana. Hey, we want you to fight Akiyama, sexy Yama in <laughs> two weeks on this huge pay-per-view card. So Lieben calls me and he says, well, we get on a three-way call with me, Lieben and our agent and Lieben says, man, I don't think I want this fight, man. I just fought. It's been a long camp. I'm tired and I'm not sure what I should do. So I said, hey, man, so what if Dana offered you a million dollars to fight Godzilla in Tokyo tomorrow? Would you take the fight? And he said, wow, for a million dollars. Yeah, of course I would. So I said, so it's not that you don't want to fight. It's that you want to be compensated for this fight. Give me a number. And he said, geez, well, I think, you know, last minute fight, biggest card. I, I want 250000 
So I got with the agent and I said, okay, so you're going to handle this. You call Dana and you tell him he wants 250,000 and that's what we want. Or we're just going to walk away. And the agent says, he's going to hate me. He's going to be super angry. And I said, perfect. He's not supposed to like you. You work for Lieben. Okay. You don't work for him. He's going to hate you. So the agent got Dana on the phone and told him what it was. Dana yelled into the phone. Oh, this is all about money for you. Is it? And slammed the phone down. <laughs> yeah. Just like you, it's all about money for us <laughs> because we have a future for our families to build. And Lieben got his money. It was the one time that we had actual negotiating power because they needed him They renegotiated his contract, gave him a huge signing bonus, gave him a big raise. He ended up getting an extra hundred thousand dollar bonus for his performance that night. The money's always there, but the promoters, the owners are never going to, to pay it unless you are in a position of power. And that's what the all the expansion act. That's what the class action lawsuit will do. It will give the fighters the ability to find their true value. And we won't have to talk about this nonsense anymore. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, something that i would like more fans to bend behind but uh, i uh hoping this this conversation would uh, perhaps like be able to myth bust some of the misconceptions that uh, fight fans uh, have in their minds about how well, this all here's one works. here's one that i hear all the time it's that the, the sport of, of mma is so new you, you just have to wait. You, you just can't try to force all these changes. And I, I, I listen to that argument and I'm like, so yeah, but you know, I, I don't really think Muhammad Ali's social media presence was that great. And he was getting paid more. Yeah. Jack Johnson, man, he, his social media was terrible. It's a different world, man. How, how many pay-per-view points did Jack Johnson get? Did Gene Tunney get? It's a different world. No, you cannot compare boxing a hundred years ago to today. It's, it's just not that way. Oh, we need time to build it up. No, you don't. I don't have to sit here and send a telegraph on who won the John Jones fight around the world. We're not listening to it on the radio. You're buying it on your digital box. They could not have dreamed of a hundred years ago, watching it at home live in a booming stereo with all your friends around it's a completely different world you cannot compare today to yesterday the ufc has gone leaps and bounds what used to take 100 years now takes five or two as we see something become popular and then take the world over it's it's just one of the most ridiculous arguments i've ever heard yeah mass communications just made everything uh, making everything exp exponentially fast every process and uh, especially like arguments about how all change takes time it's not gonna take no, all that much time these days it like, doesn't really... it does not take time change does not take time in most situations and i realized that the ufc was changing when i had a, a question or a request i was asking for something i don't even remember what it was and i was told Oh, that's against company policy. And I went, what? So now there's company policy, huh? Because before it was call Dana and ask, and he'd say yes or no. But now it's this mystical company policy where no one has to take responsibility for, for shitting on the fighters. That's just, you know, that's just the way the company is. I'm sorry. I, I don't know who set that rule. Yes, you do. It's your boss. 
and he could change that. That's it's just the biggest scapegoat. Yeah, like I mean, the buck has to stop somewhere, <laughs> and it all stops it at the top. Yeah, it does not trickle down. Nope, it doesn't. And I mean, like yeah, like uh, this idea uh, that uh, we just have to wait and the MMA will just magically fix itself simply because it's 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 going to get older is is like frankly quite ridiculous and uh, that's 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 just a, another great argument there you know if we give these billionaires a tax cut then they'll open more businesses because <laughs> clearly jeff bezos doesn't have enough money to give his workers health care when he's only worth 200 billion dollars if he was worth 250 maybe they could have a lunch break and not have to piss in a bottle no. yeah like I mean, I mean, people always like point to the private sector and what what uh, good things the private sector is coming up with, uh, especially when people like uh, idolize uh, someone like Elon Musk, for example, who always proposes like ridiculous concepts of, like building like vacuum tubes all over the the country instead of normal trains. And when you actually run the numbers, nothing in it makes sense, like engineering wise, and it will all fall apart and explode. Or like people point to the uh, uh, Burj Khalifa in uh, Dubai, like, oh, what an achievement of uh, private capital. And then you look at the technical specs of Burj Khalifa, the tower, the enormous tower. It's not connected to the sewer system. And it has hundreds of trucks running day in and day out, like through the building to take literal actual human shit out of the building because they didn't bother to pay for it it was a vanity project billionaires do not care about efficiency they they do not care about uh making stuff that is actually good they care about uh, creating the idea that things are good so the status quo is maintained and they continue increasing their wealth at the expense of everyone else that's just it's kind of and capitalism is such a great thing because it, it motivates people to innovate, to find new ways to do things, to make something of themselves. If you see an actual result from your hard work coming at you, that's a great thing. But unbridled capitalism, that's where we get the problem, yeah. where they're the ones buying the elections. They're the ones changing the regulations. Look up at some point lead, leaded gasoline, lead and paint, things like that. They knew that this was poisonous for decades. They fought it in courts till the very end. And this was poisoning people. And it didn't mean as much to them as their profits. Same thing with asbestos. Same thing with climate change. Exxon knew back in the 70s what they were doing was going to affect the climate. They raised the, the, the rigs, the oil rigs in the ocean to deal with the climate change. And then they spent millions and millions on combating uh, the public knowledge of climate change. I actually had a guy tell me one time that Greenpeace was the evil one and the oil companies were innocent. <laughs> and I just, I, I just shook my head and I said, man, that does not even compute. How, how does this work? You have this unbridled capitalism that just destroys everything. And we're seeing that the whole world is on fire right now. Yeah. I'm concerned about being able to to get water, about having fires burning around our house. What's the world going to be like for my child, for my grandchildren? Like there are currently wildfires in Yakutia in Russia. 
like thousands of kilometers north from here, from where I live. And the smoke from those wildfires reached me down south, thousands of kilometers out. And then like when you look around and just how can you say that everything is fine? And I mean, capitalism is great for motivating the free market and all that and the the marketplace of ideas. But when capitalism, uh, there aren't any checks and balances on it. The only thing it's going to uh, continue innovating is how to sell more of the stuff they already have at a higher price without actually making it better because there's no incentive to continue improving. And the incentive is in challenging that, uh, that system every step of the way. Yeah. And it's the same with the UFC and it's the same with MMA overall. But uh, it's kind of the hard, the hard concept to grasp, I guess, amongst MMA fans, at least yeah. for now. So Well, and again, I think it goes back to they look at their life and they say, man, I'm killing myself at this thankless job. Those guys are adored by the fans. They're making way more money than me. They just need to shut up and realize how lucky they are. Yeah, I'll I'll say it a million times how lucky I am. But a big part of my luck was being ready and sacrifice. I've had people tell me it's their destiny to be a UFC champion, that Mm -hmm. they believe in themselves and they can do it. I had a guy tell me that and I said, cool, you know, show up to the gym. I won't even put you through sparring or training. I'll put you through one conditioning workout. If you can make it through the conditioning workout and you're still happy, then we'll begin your training. The conditioning workout was a, a, it was a tough one, but it was minor, less than half an hour. He lasted, I think about 10 minutes (laughs) and it was just like, oh, I, I had no idea. No, you didn't. Because what we do is very different. I can't show up to your job and do what you do. I would need training. Don't pretend you can show up to mine because you've watched a lot of fights. I've spent half of my lifetime trying to become an expert in hurting people with these two hands. That's all I do. That's how I feed my family. That's all I thought about for many, many years. How can I slip this punch? How can I throw a counter punch? How can I knee this guy in the head? How can I hit him with an elbow? How can I snap him down into a choke? How can I switch him into a face lock? Will his jaw pop? Will his neck break? Can I switch around to the back? Those are the things that goes through a fighter's mind all the time. That's all we think about and all we do, all we practice. I would wake up in the morning, have a very boring breakfast, go train for an hour and a half, come home, have a very boring lunch, take a nap, go back in the evening, train again at another brutal practice of sparring, kickboxing, jujitsu, wrestling, conditioning over and over year after year. And when you do that, I had a friend who, who played in the NBA and it came time to, towards his retirement. And I said, man, are you going to miss it? And he goes, Oh God, no, I'm so sick of this. <laughs> just every day I'm out there playing ball and working so hard. It is just a job for me at this point. And that's what people don't realize. It's, It's something that you love doing. You have to do it for the love of it. But at the same time, man, it's the hardest job you're ever going to undertake. When you're showing up to train injured, I I had a nerve injury in my left leg before one of my fights and I couldn't take the time off. I had to keep training. I needed that money because I was completely broke. So I still went and I trained and I leaned against the wall and threw my punches and shadow box on one leg and fought on one leg because I couldn't put any weight on my left leg. And it's, it's the sacrifices that go through to make these things a reality that the fans never comprehend. I fought uh, Damian Maya with uh, the flu 
102 degree fever. I was throwing up the whole night before, but I wasn't going to tell Damien, sorry, man, I'm not feeling good. I can't fight. You can't feed your family for three months. And I can't feed mine either because it's going to take me a while to recover, to get back into shape, make my fight again. No, I had to fight sick. Any other job, I would have stayed home, called the boss and said, hey, man, you know, it's not that really that big of a deal if I don't show up this one day. But when yeah. you're a fighter, those two or three days of year are your entire year's income. And you show up no matter what, because you don't have a savings to fall back on because you're paid so little that you barely make it from fight to fight. But yeah, like even from a completely selfish standpoint, even if you take the most selfish fight fan out there, the most entitled fight fan who always constantly talks about how fighters are getting greedy and how uh, there's just no hunger in the game anymore and all that stuff. Like if you explain to a person like that, the, like the sheer fact that the, uh, the fighters are, will get compensated better then the quality of the product will get better and the quality of entertainment that you will get out of it, out of the sport, will become better because fighters will will be able to allow themselves the luxury, I guess, uh, in these conditions, it, it can be considered a luxury to take the time off and recover and uh, maybe slap together a better camp, maybe improve the equipment situation at the gym, maybe find better training partners the, who they can pay to, to spar them who have a specific skill set they need to work on and fighters will just get better and the sport will get better and fighters will not like in, under current conditions fighters like as you said often fight and on your personal experience from your personal experience fighters often fight in uh, in a physical condition that is just suboptimal and naturally when when you're like that and, and of course fighters have all fighters have tremendous willpower and uh, if you you have to basically like work through this and they will through work through this and fighters do work uh like injuries and uh sicknesses and stuff but it's still uh it's it's like 100 a fact that they're not at uh at their best when they fight like this and uh if they were able to allow themselves the time off and to recover then perhaps they would have uh, had a much better fight maybe like two months and or maybe even one month down the line who knows well, and i can tell that that fight fan i bet money i can find somebody that will do the job that he does for a lot less money mm -hmm. so what are you greedy because <laughs> you want you want a living wage to do your job now i can find somebody that will do it a lot less in fact let's just take out the minimum wage And we'll let the, the free market just decide. And that's what's so hilarious. We have to have a minimum wage because without it, employers would pay nothing. So yeah. they're required by law. And the same thing here in America where we have all sorts of laws. Uh, you can't start working until you're 13 or 14. You can't start using equipment, I think, until you're 16 or so. Those are laws that we had to have put in place because we had five-year-olds working in the factories. We had children cleaning chimneys doing all these things childhood and going to school is a relatively new thing before that it was all these horrific working things and there was something called the triangle shirtwaist fire that happened around 100 years ago where there was no safety conditions this huge fire broke out something like 120 women all died in where they were were sewing and doing textiles and clothing and so everybody went on strike 
to change the laws to make safer working conditions. But it's been so long ago, nobody thinks about that. They don't get up and go, my God, I sure thank those women at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory for making sure that I have a safe working condition. Uh, no, everyone, they just everyone. take it. They just, can just take it as for granted and don't think about it. And again, th this is just our time. Yeah. Every industry has gone through this. Every sport has gone through this. And every single one has had the same naysayers. Oh, those guys are so greedy. I do that for free. Uh-huh. Yeah. Put yeah, some sure time in will. it. We'll see. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Everyone talks about the good old days, uh, and uh, especially like in the current political climate, everyone talks about how, how uh, people are getting soft. Uh, the world that is going to shit. has been made forever. Yes. I'm reading a book called Black Elk Speaks. Uh, it was written, I think, around 1920 or so. Black Elk was born in the 1800s, and he was part of a big Native American tribe here, a leader of it. And in the book, he talks about how weak the, the men, the, the boys are that are growing up are this day. So back in 1920, Black Elk is talking about how weak the boys are because what they couldn't chase down uh, an elk and kill him with their bare hands. No, that's just every older generation looks at somebody. It's like my generation looking at my daughter's generation, my sons and saying, God, you guys can't do anything. You don't, you don't know how to do this. Well, by the way, can you set my clock for me? Can you change my, my digital watch? <laughs> Time goes on and you adapt with those times as they change and you do what's needed. We talk about the greatest generation that fought in World War II, where the generation now won't even put a mask over their face to help stop a pandemic here in the States. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, like to illustrate the point even further, it's that I'm 25 and sometimes I look at <laughs> my younger cousins who are like 16 and 18 and i always think about like man <laughs> those boys ain't right <laughs> <laughs> and like it's just it's a silly irrational thing when you actually stop and think about all this it's a uh, you, you, you people don't need to do this don't need to be able to do the same things you were able to do like like 20 years ago just simply because we have the technology now for that specifically people actually invented that to make our life easier and just to, to blame everything on progress it's kind of like it's just silly yeah. <laughs> and it's the same with uh, trying to change the conditions the working conditions everywhere for the better and the mma is no different yeah yeah, yeah it's certainly certainly a hefty topic <laughs> just can't can't cover it in one go but i suppose you have uh, places to be things to do uh yeah my toddler's been running around and he needs some attention we got to get dinner started yeah. all that kind of stuff yeah certainly like very interesting uh, damn fly <laughs> sorry um, well before i jump off let me throw in some self-promotion if i can yeah sure definitely so <laughs> It's not available on the website, but it will be very soon. 
people always ask how they can support fighters. Well, first off, uh, contacting congressmen if you're here in the United States to support the Ali Expansion Act, that'll be a huge thing. But going to a fighter's website, buying their own personal shirt, their gear, uh, if they have any sponsors, contacting the sponsors saying, I'm going to use your business because you're supporting the sponsor. And one thing that people can do to support me is I've done a biographical horror story of my life called Zombie Cage Fighter. It is a graphic novel with incredible artwork and storytelling inside. And this amazing team came together to help me make the reality of combat real. It's a six issue series compiled into this one graphic novel that we just funded through a Kickstarter campaign and printed. So anybody that wants to support me and my journey and my families can go to zombiecagefighter.com and order the graphic novel. It should be available fairly soon. Just bookmark it for now. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. And uh, uh, and also, I guess, to run a bit of my own self-promotion because I'm contractually obligated to do that. There's actually no contract. I'm just working for a friend. But uh, either way... Uh, uh, this uh, the whole website wouldn't function without patron support. We rely exclusively on donations to function, to continue functioning, continue creating content. So uh, we, I guess, we're both <laughs> dependent on the, on people's generosity in a sense. And uh, yeah, go on uh, fightside.com, uh, read our articles, and go on Patreon uh, fightside.com to support us. It's three dollars per month and five dollars per month. There's lots of Exclusive fight breakdowns, alternate commentary uh, tracks, stuff like that, and uh, we have a Discord community where you can, which you can where you can join uh, the Discord server and uh, interact with like-minded fight fans and uh, get a direct line to staff members, so you can talk to us and ask questions, and uh, maybe provide topic suggestions. And yeah. Uh, Thank you very much for finding the time to join me. And uh, I, once again, I apologize for how just sort of like slapdash the whole thing was. Uh, no it was a good conversation. We all yeah, worked it out. It was, uh, yeah, definitely a very fascinating conversation. One that I would like to revisit maybe at some point in the future, sure uh, if, if yeah. uh, you, you will find the time. And certainly there's a lot more to cover in the things that we talked about. Uh, the maybe find more specificity in some of the things that we wanted uh, especially to emphasize but either way thank you very much for your time Nate uh, welcome yeah and uh, I guess uh, I suppose I'll see you later then <laughs> okay yeah support Nate's support Nate's uh, graphic novel project and buy the graphic novel uh, Nate already said where you can buy it and uh, definitely, maybe, perhaps, if you're interested in more of uh, Nate's thoughts, uh, they people can follow you on social media. Uh, your Twitter is at uh, Nate Rock Quarry, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, follow Nate. Certainly, he has way more insight to share on social media. He's very outspoken, very fascinating stuff, and uh, actually, the primary reason why I decided to reach out to you because I'm. Uh, I'm actually a newer fan, and uh, uh, I learned about you from your, uh, I suppose, from you expressing your social views as opposed to your fighting career. But mm. it's something I definitely intend to catch up on because it seems like uh, uh, it does some fascinating story there in history. 
um so yeah uh once again thank you and uh okay. you have a, you please enjoy your evening uh, and, uh, <laughs> thank you have a good day uh, how would you up yeah <laughs> bye